disciples often uh, took uh, a, a while to understand what Jesus was saying. In, in Mark chapter 6, the last chapter, uh, verse 52, said the disciples did not gain any insight from the miracle of the, fa- the feeding of the 5,000, uh, as they should have. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce has a famous book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, and it uh, includes this, this passage here, this interaction with uh, this woman of Jesus, where he, he pushes back on her request for help and refers to her in some way as, as a dog in a sort of a mini parable, a parable uh, here in his response. I think that the striking apparent harshness of Jesus' words here, his apparent hesitation to help this woman, ultimately serves as a challenge and a lesson to his 12 disciples who were, as, as we all are, slow to, slow to learn. Um, it's been said of Jesus that he comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Um, with his words and and to the degree that we are comfortable in our own wisdom or our own lack of of sanctification uh, may we be afflicted and arrested uh, by the words of Jesus uh, to our greater understanding of his grace and truth well uh, before we look at this interaction with the woman here let's understand something of the the context and the setting here the context in terms of where this story is in, in Mark and how he's presenting it um, in his gospel is, is important. It's immediately following on what we looked at last week and Jesus teaching about what's clean and unclean. Um, uh, not foods, uh, not certainly the Pharisees' um, extra-biblical long lists of rules, uh, but Jesus points to the heart. Uh, the heart does what makes someone clean or unclean. Not that outward practice is not um, unimportant or can be separated from the heart, but the heart is primary, a heart that loves God. And Jesus, again, is reversing um, understandings of the Jews that here that the, the rule-following Pharisees uh, were, in fact, far from God. And now as Jesus goes outside of Israel, and in this account that we've read this morning, to a pagan region, uh, this interaction here serves to sort of act that out, act out that teaching, illustrate that teaching about what is clean and who is clean or who is unclean, and and what some people consider to be unclean or unworthy, uh, in fact, are not that in God's eyes as we'll see. Uh, the setting, we're told, is in verse 24, Jesus went to the region of Tyre. Uh, most Bibles have some maps in the back if you want to look and see where, where Tyre is. We're um, far to the northwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, now um, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, well outside of historic uh, Israel, uh, the, the land of Israel. This is modern-day Lebanon. Uh, where Jesus is. Um, Tyre had a long history of conflict with Israel, um, uh, history of leading Israel into idolatry. Uh, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel is from there, uh, the, the wicked queen, uh, wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the sort of people and region that the Jews expected the Messiah to come and um, defeat and, and subdue. In verse 24, uh, we, we also told that Jesus enters a house and didn't want anyone to know of it. He, 
he didn't want anyone to know why he was there. We're not told why that is, uh, but there are other times when Jesus, uh, sometimes alone, sometimes with his disciples, is trying to get away, trying to get a break from the crowds, time with his disciples to teach them or to rest. Uh, that was the case before the feeding of 5,000. Um, they were trying, going, even going across the lake to get away from the crowds to rest, and they, they couldn't do it. And we're told again here, um, they couldn't escape uh, notice. And in Matthew's account, his parallel account, it says they, they withdrew, which, which adds to that sense that they were trying to get some rest and, and time away. They thought maybe surely a, a, a private house in Tyre, uh, way outside of Israel, would, would give some privacy. But uh, in fact, it doesn't as this, this woman uh, approaches Jesus with her request. So Consider, secondly, this, this interaction, looking at number two on your outline. First, the woman and her request. In the ancient world, generally, uh, there was a, a low, unbiblical view of women. In, in the Roman Empire and, and beyond, um, in some places, women were often uh, seen as little more than possessions uh, of their, their husbands. Um, and even among the Jews, among uh, the Jews, there was a higher view of women. Surely there was uh, a level of dignity, but uh, they should have had a better theology. There, they were still women were still treated as something as uh, in terms of second class um, uh, in, in some ways. Um, there's a there's a prayer, a Jewish prayer in the Talmud, an ancient prayer, uh, extant to today, still part of um, uh, liturgies that, that uh, Jews have, uh, that, that says, Thank you, Lord, I am not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Uh, and if you, you can Google that prayer and, and read um, many Jewish websites trying to explain how that's not um, misogynistic um, in some way. But in Jesus' time, even among the Jews, men would not typically address women uh, in public or, or be addressed by them. Uh, they certainly would never touch them. A rabbi wouldn't have women following him. And so Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels are often remarkable against that, that background. And we'll come back to that uh, in, in a With requests again, somewhat something against uh, social custom, um, but she has more than that against her. She's a, a Gentile, uh, and so unclean in the in the eyes of the Jews. Uh, her daughter is demon possessed, and so she has uh, servants of Satan living in her home. Uh, in essence, uh, she's not just any Gentile. We're told she's a Syrophoenician uh, from this this broader region of, of Phoenicia. This most hated part of the, the pagan world with, relative to the Jews that uh, especially caused trouble and suffering and been, been persecuting the, the truth and the people of God for many years. Um, so she has these four strikes against her, uh, if you will, as she comes to Jesus. And yet it says in verse 25 that she came and fell at his feet. Verse 26, she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is the sign of her, her humility, falling at Jesus' feet, her dependence on his compassion and his power. Let's consider then, secondly, Jesus' response. Uh, verse 27, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
So in this sort of mini parable uh, analogy that Jesus gives, he's whatever he means, he's clearly picturing himself as laying out some kind of a meal, picturing uh, the, the Jews in general, and maybe maybe narrowly his disciples who are with him as the children, and this woman as some kind of, of dogs in the scene. Why does Jesus say this? What, what does he mean? It seems perhaps hard to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is being harsh in, in some way, treating her like the society would, in, uh, in insulting her by this comparison uh, with, with dogs. How should we understand this? And, and uh, I want to admit up front that I think this is a very hard passage to understand. There's not uh, universal agreement on, on how to understand um, why Jesus used these words uh, exactly, being so far removed from that culture and, and Jesus' references. Um, I'm not confident in every detail necessarily how to, how to understand this. But I, I, I want to begin with two important considerations. Two considerations, I think, in, that inform our understanding this. Uh, and then two possible interpretations uh, of Jesus' words here. So the two, two considerations. First is the term that Jesus uses. So uh, to call someone a dog in the ancient world was, was an insult, uh, like, it, like it could be uh, in our world, uh, in our culture. But it was, uh, it was commonly used as an insult. Uh, in, in that time. Um, there's a common word used for that, the word for dog that re- referred to a, a street dog, the dirty nuisance scavengers that lived uh, around uh, the towns. That's the word that was used pejoratively of people. But here Jesus doesn't use uh, that, that word. He uses the word uh, dog in the diminutive sense uh, or tense, so meaning little. Right? If you're to, uh, in another language, use a, a word for you know, a, a person or a child in the diminutive, you mean a, a little child. Right? So Jesus refers to little dogs here, which is the, the term used for dogs that might actually live in a house, uh, like pets, um, little dogs. Now we still need to be careful not to be anachronistic. Um, uh, uh, using that word pets, Jesus still meant some kind of a sharp distinction right, between the, the children and the dogs, even if their pets live in the house, even if they're liked and cared for in, in some sense. Um, also, just not being anachronistic, dogs weren't necessarily like many people view dogs today uh, in our culture. Uh, these dogs weren't eating canned salmon, you know, fortified with vitamins, and um, they weren't owned by people calling themselves doggy mommies and doggy daddies, and the mobile groomer wasn't coming and giving them the, the salon experience uh, either. They, this is a time when dogs were dogs, uh, in other words. But um, again, it's not it's it's not a simple uh, outright insult. Okay, so it's it's not the word for street dogs that Jesus uses. Some kind of a, a household scene. Uh, it's a household scene at meal meal time. The logic is. So don't just give the children's dinner plate. You don't take their dinner plate and dump it on the floor for the dogs to eat before the children to be. Right? It's, it's the children's food. So whatever Jesus means by this, that's the simple logic of the scene here. 
The second consideration, uh, so the first was the term Jesus uses, the, the second is just simply the record of Jesus' attitude towards and interactions with women. Uh, it, it ought to help and inform uh, what Jesus, how we, how we interpret this. I, I said I'm going to give two interpretations. There's, there's another one, um, which is that Jesus really did just insult this woman because he thought like everyone else thought in the culture, and her humble, witty response, uh, you know, kind of softened him a bit, and, and he helped her out. I don't think that's the, the interpretation um, that, that's even possible, and largely because of this consideration of Jesus' interaction with women, along with the, all the teaching of the Bible. Again, against social custom, Jesus frequently uh, addressed women, or uh, interacted with them. Um, there's the woman at the well with the, the five husbands, um, who many wouldn't have wanted to be associated with, or the woman of Nain, or, or others who were unclean, the woman that we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark with the, the menstrual bleed for many, many years, who, who uh, Jesus tolerated her coming up and, and touching him in public. It wasn't a problem for Jesus at all. He had compassion on her. Um, others who were in, in great sin, the, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus interacted with, with compassion. Um, he accepted another woman who we're told was living in some kind of sin, probably as a, a prostitute, was washing and kissing his feet. Jesus accepted that act of, of humble appreciation. We're told in Luke chapter 8 that there were many women, many is the word, following Jesus during his ministry, supporting him out of their own pockets. Uh, beginning of Luke chapter 8, uh, we read about his, his friends and his, his affection for uh, his friends Mary and Martha. Uh, we're specifically told of a group of women who followed Jesus to his death on the cross uh, when his disciples had largely abandoned him. Um, of course, it was a woman who was first told out of all of humanity uh, of the coming birth of Jesus. And at his resurrection, Jesus first appeared uh, to women. And so it seems impossible that Jesus is, out of his own attitude, at least, insulting this woman as a woman uh, by this uh, little analogy that he gives. So how should we understand this response? One interpretation uh, is basically this, and, and uh, in the background here is Matthew's parallel account. Uh, the disciples, he, Matthew includes the fact that the disciples actually urged Jesus to send this woman away when she first came and started uh, begging him to, to help her and her daughter. Uh, they said, send this woman away, send this, send this pagan woman away. And so one interpretation is that Jesus is taking on the, intentionally taking on the attitude and the culture of the disciples with, with a rhetorical purpose to test the woman and then to, to go on to blow up that attitude and reject it in welcoming and helping and praising this woman and, and teaching his disciples. Uh, so that, that, that's possible. I, I think uh, that the interpretation is a little bit different. I think Jesus is testing her. He is intending to teach his disciples in this response. But he's doing so using, again, the analogy of a household at mealtime. The analogy is to his mission as Messiah. Uh, verse 27, look at his response again. He says, let the children be satisfied first. So he's not speaking about 
one group who gets something and another group who doesn't, right? There's a, there's a priority in a household between the children and the pets. There's a necessary temporary priority in Jesus' ministry. Okay, and we read about this throughout uh, the New Testament, even throughout the, the whole of the Bible. Matthew 15, uh, in the parallel accounts, again, uh, Matthew gives us a little more of Jesus' response. It says first that he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. There's Jesus' priority in his ministry. Not, not an exclusion, but a priority. In Matthew 10, uh, Jesus sends his 12 disciples out to preach the gospel, and he instructs them uh, not to go uh, among the Gentiles, not to go to the towns of the Samaritans, but rather to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, that was to be, at that time, their priority. The, the, the historic covenant people of God who were to be waiting for the Messiah, they were to hear the news that, that he's here first. There's a logical priority there. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are speaking to the Jews. And they say it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Then they say, but since you thrust it aside and prove yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan for the gospel and gospel ministry uh, to go to the whole world, but there was a priority in Jesus' ministry uh, to the Jews, to the people of God. Uh, it may be kind of like a, an artist who um, might prioritize getting her work into the hands of, of those who have appreciated her work or who are anticipating it or who might be logically likely to actually use it or, or appreciate it. Um, the pagan areas like Phoenicia, like Tyre, where Jesus is now, have centuries and centuries of history of rejecting and persecuting the truth and the people of God. And God has a plan to, to reverse that and, and to, to break the power by the power of the gospel and his grace. But first, to bring the gospel to his people who are waiting for it. Uh, and I, I, the Old Testament anticipates this, Isaiah 49. Uh, there are many places in the Old Testament anticipate the gospel, uh, the full grace of God going to the, all the nations of the world. Isaiah 49, God is speaking to his servant, the, the Messiah, and says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob first, bring back the preserved Israel. Then I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so I, I think here it's as if Jesus is saying to this woman, I was sent to those who, who have and are looking for the promises of God first. And why should I break from that? Why should I turn, maybe specifically in this context, why should I turn from my, my resting and my time instructing my, my 12 disciples here, um, why should I turn that to serve your request? Wouldn't that be sort of like taking your kid's dinner and giving it to the pets before the kids have eaten? How are you deserving? It's, it's, a, it's a strongly worded challenge test of, of this woman. And perhaps, I think perhaps even in that interpretation, maybe he's taking on, he is taking on some of the disciples' attitude in order to point out her faith and explode their attitude and, and to teach about his mission to all nations, uh, to all people. Well, let's consider her, her reply then to Jesus. 
We're made, I think, to wonder what, what will her reply be? What is she, what is she going to think about this analogy? Is she going to say, that's not fair, you prejudiced jerk? I, I have just as much a right to your help as anyone else has? No, she, she, under, she, she understands what Jesus says and accepts it. Her response is, yes, Lord. As in, I, I agree. Yes, Lord. She doesn't take offense, but she agrees there is a priority in, in Jesus' ministry. She seems to understand better than the disciples do. Um, one commentator points out that this woman is really the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and understand a parable, uh, to really get it. But the disciples are going to go on uh, in their lack of understanding to argue about which of them is the greatest. This woman makes no claims uh, to Jesus' mercy, but she just comes humbly to him. Uh, she accepts this analogy, uh, uh, this, this little parable uh, of her as a mere household dog with no right to, to the table of Jesus, the Lord of history. She's not deserving like a child. But she cleverly also, she cleverly extends his analogy, doesn't she? Yes, sir, but even, even the dogs, even the little pets in the house eat crumbs that fall off the table. They, they get fed. They, they are, in turn, cared for. She has confidence that the mercy and the provision of Jesus will overflow even to someone like her. Uh, Jesus' ministry was not ultimately limited to Israel. It would be abundant for everyone. And how does she understand that? We don't know. We don't know how she even knew who Jesus was or how she knew he was there in, in town, far from Israel. The disciples should have understood something of Jesus' ministry to all the nations of the world. He's, he's already been to the region of the Gerasenes and, and healed the demoniac there, for example. Uh, consider Jesus' final response to her then, verse 29, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter, and she goes home and finds this to be true. This is a, a response of approval and, and praise. It's, it's stronger and clearer in Matthew's account. Uh, he has uh, Jesus saying, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. He, he praises her, and she's remembered uh, throughout church history for her great and humble faith. And interestingly, there's uh, an extra biblical source um, from the first century, uh, someone writing who claims to know this woman and her daughter, says they, they live among us. This uh, Syrophoenician woman who was uh, healed in the city of Tyre and, and names her Eusta and her daughter Bernice. So um, I don't know for sure whether that's, that's who they were, but that's the, the names that church history uh, gives to them. Well, what can we learn then from this, this account, this interaction? Uh, a few lessons looking at number three on your outline. First is simply this. Again, we learn that anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone can come to Jesus. Again, following on the previous passage, this, this illustrates Jesus' teaching that nothing is unclean except the heart, except the heart that, that rejects the Lord. This, this woman, who is unclean technically, yet stands in sharp contrast to the Pharisees who are outwardly squeaky clean, 
right? The Pharisees who Jesus says hearts are unbelieving. The Pharisees who demand proof from Jesus. They think they're highly deserving of God's favor. And we see that the one deserving is this woman who comes humbly to Jesus. This woman with a presumably pagan past and no, no credentials, no religious credentials at all, but she comes to Jesus in genuine, humble faith. Uh, it's interesting to note there have been two people now who have come and fallen at the feet of Jesus and, and pleaded with him for some mercy. The first was Jairus. Jairus uh, had a lot going for him culturally. He was a man. Uh, he was uh, the head of the synagogue. He was a Jew. Uh, but we see in this account that this woman had no disadvantage at all in comparison with someone like Jairus uh, in, in finding Jesus' grace. Uh, it's a clear example to you that no matter who you are, uh, no matter what you have done, uh, Jesus' grace and compassion have no bounds. It's, it's a reminder for Christians that we must not look on others judgmentally. I don't mean that we don't recognize sin, we don't condemn sin, but anyone in the world is a potential object, a potential recipient of Jesus' compassion. Only through faith and, and repentance, if, if it's God's will, yes, but for our part, we can and must show the grace and compassion of Jesus uh, toward others, especially our brothers and sisters in the church, but, but to all people. And that, that leads to, and I'm really getting into my second point of application here, uh, letter B is uh, on the matter of opposing prejudicial attitudes. This passage teaches us something about opposing prejudicial attitudes. This was, I think, part of Jesus' purpose in teaching the disciples by his own example here. Um, they said, again in Matthew's account, they said, send her away, get rid of this woman. It wasn't wrong for the disciples to recognize that she was a pagan, that she was outside of the covenant of God, evidently, but Jesus welcomes her. Jesus sees her as an object of compassion, someone the Spirit is evidently at work in to bring into the kingdom of God. And I think there are many applications there for us that, that we need to not make distinctions in our minds, distinctions in our attitudes uh, between people in terms of our willingness to love them our willingness to see them as uh, equally needy of the grace of God as, uh, with ourselves. Um, e eagerness to bring them to Jesus. And there are many ways that we could do this. Uh, there are a couple of examples maybe that we might find even in the church. One would be holding the sin of homosexuality as a sort of super sin uh, above, say, Divorce, something else that affects God's institution of, of marriage. God's word says he hates divorce. That can lead to us distorted distinctions and attitudes that we have towards others who maybe don't honor God's um, design for marriage in, in various ways. I think sometimes we have a hierarchy of, uh, of, of sins or distance that we place between ourselves and others. Um, taking an automatically antagonistic rather than compassionate stance towards someone else, maybe an unbeliever, if they're a part of one political party rather than another. Like no one is farther from God or closer to Jesus because they're in one political party rather than another. 
Finally, this passage, I think, teaches us humble gratitude for crumbs. Better see humble gratitude for crumbs. This woman is an example of faith that's not presumptuous. It's not entitled to the grace of God. Uh, she accepts that she has no claim on the grace of God. She has no religious credentials. She has nothing to offer. She'll be content with mere crumbs from Jesus. Um, it reminds us of David in Psalm 84, what we sang uh, just before. Uh, the, the sermon here. Uh, David says, if, if I could just be a doorkeeper in the house of God, that, that would be great. Just a, a lowly position. That, that's how high he held the temple and the, the symbol that the temple was of the presence of God with his people. If I could just be a servant there, just a doorkeeper. And then he goes on to, to speak in, in envy of the birds that live at the temple in, in the cracks and, and so on. Um, thinking about how neat it is that the birds get to live there. This, this woman essentially responding to this, this analogy of being a, a, a little dog in the household of God says, yes, please. Uh, yes. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes that our, our, in um, summarizing our, our attitude and application of this, that every crumb I receive as an unworthy servant. That points to the fact that we, we won't rightly understand how amazing the grace of God is if we don't accept how depraved and hopeless and sinful we are apart from His grace. And if we don't accept the justice of God's wrath against our sin, if, if all we need from God is to be redirected a little bit and helped along the way and, and encouraged and so on, straightened out a little, then God's, God's love be just, just becomes a, a sort of neighborly kindness. Right? Not an amazing grace. It's like you wave and smile to your neighbor, you know, even though they're not always very nice or fair to you. But, you know, you'll be, you'll be gracious and throw them a bone and, and, and smile and, and be nice. Um, that, that's not a parallel for God's grace to us at all. The gospel is God welcoming his enemies to his table, uh, into his family. If, if those descriptions sound too harsh and we don't understand the biblical picture of, of humanity's lostness or just how great the, the love and the grace of God is... Uh, John Gerstner, uh, if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul, you probably know John Gerstner is his, his mentor, um, his main mentor. He was lecturing um, years ago in, in his lecture at this conference. He was comparing humans to uh, before God, not to mix up our theological categories, um, not in their worth or dignity, rel dignity relative to each other, right? It's, that's created in the image of God, but comparing humans before God to rats, right? They're like rats in their relation to us, right? Think about our attitude towards rats. They're dirty. They're a nuisance. They're not really good for anything. We poison them and trap them and kill them. And a woman raised her hand at, at the end of this lecture and, and was horrified. So that's unfair. That's that's demeaning. That's you know stripping humans of, of dignity. Compare them to rats. And uh, there's some kind of discussion ensued. There was a break in the conference, and, and Gerstner comes back the next lecture and says, you know, I I thought about it some more after that discussion, and I I do believe I owe an apology to the rats. <laughs> um, 
He said rats are just being exactly who they were created by God to be. Right? While, while humans, the only being capable of knowing and appreciating and loving their creator God, are willfully rebelling against him, committing cosmic treason in their many sins. It's not fair to the rats uh, to, to drag them down to that level before God. Uh, the point is simply that when you, it's, it's when you realize that we're not, we're not deserving of even a crumb of grace from the table of God that we can be unspeakably amazed that Jesus has appointed you to a banquet feast uh, forever. Right? It's when you realize that you're not deserving even to be house pets in the household of God that you can be unspeakably amazed that you've been adopted into his family as the children of God. Right? With all the love and the rights of Jesus himself to that family and, and to that inheritance. We're going to sing in just a moment from Psalm 87, and I'll close with this, uh, about Psalm 87, which speaks of God's love for Zion, that's where Jerusalem is, symbolic of his people, God's love for his people there. But it goes on, the psalm goes on to speak of all those who will one day come to know him and be included in that love uh, that he has for his family at Zion. It, It mentions Babylon and Philistia and Tyre. The city where Jesus is in this story here, we could we could uh, extend that logically to the United States, to Germany, to, to Kenya. And it says that God will say of those places in Psalm 87, "This one was born in Zion." It's it's, it's not just that these nations and this this is you, right? This is you and me. It's not this that that we would one day come to know him and we become friends or something, but that that God would count you as one who is born into his royal holy family. Psalm 87, amazingly in the Old Testament, anticipates that Philistines and Babylonians would be counted as those one day who are born uh, in Zion. So may we live like this woman in the light of that grace. Let's, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for uh, welcoming us into your family. Uh, we thank you that um, you've given us far more than crumbs and, and far more than a place under your table, but a place at your table as your children. Uh, that in, in Christ we can uh, claim in confidence your love and your compassion for us that you showed uh, toward this woman. Uh, we pray. Uh, This and thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.